Hey everybody, it is Monday, August 28th. Wow, August almost over here. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And reread all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, this Friday will be September 1st. The year is like basically done. Is that when it gets real for you in terms of, of baby O? <laughs> like September 1? <laughs> baby O's due date is in the month of September. And uh, this went by really quick. It goes by so slow. But it, then at the end, you're like, oh, my God, where did the time go? I mean, for Alex, I'm sure she has felt every <laughs> single minute of the pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, she's at the point now, like 36 plus weeks in where she's like, I need to rest. Like, you know, like, uh, it's it, it just it's a lot. It's a lot for her. And she's doing an incredible job with it. For me, it's like, well, I have a couple weekends left and I like <laughs> the furniture is coming for the nursery and I got to put this up on the wall and like, you know, learn all the various things. So we're gradually making progress. The good thing is we're in a place where like, if push comes to shove, like we're good. Um, but it would be nice for baby O to show up closer to her due date. So keeping fingers crossed. All right. With that, let's get to some news here. We're getting some more details about that racially motivated shooting at a Dollar General store in Florida, where a white gunman killed three black people. The latest from Moscow. Russian authorities confirm that Wagner group leader Prigozhin was aboard that plane that went down last week. Florida prepares for a hurricane this week on the Gulf Coast. What we know about Idalia. The FAA is investigating thousands of commercial airline pilots who concealed major health issues. In politics, one secretary of state in a key primary voting state says that he is looking at whether or not Trump is qualified constitutionally to remain on the ballot. And we remember legendary game show host Bob Barker, who we lost over the weekend. And a new study finds the exact age that you make the best financial decisions. It might be later than you think. And Moshe has on this day in history. Your clue today, don't call it a comeback. He's been here for years. All right, Moshe, we're going to start with a weekend tragedy in Jacksonville, Florida. On Saturday, a masked white man fatally shot three black people inside of a Jacksonville, Florida Dollar General store in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. The shooter, who had posted racist writings, then killed himself. Police said one of his weapons was emblazoned with a swastika. At a news conference, the Jacksonville sheriff, T.K. Waters, said that the attack that left two men and one woman dead was definitely, quote, racially motivated. Waters adding that authorities reviewed his writings and concluded that, quote, he hated black people. The sheriff said the shooter was in his 20s. He used a Glock handgun and an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle with at least one of them, again, painted with a swastika. He was wearing a bulletproof vest. As for his history, the sheriff saying that the shooter had once been involved in a 2016 domestic violence incident and was once involuntarily committed to a mental hospital for examination through the Baker Act. However, it appears all of these years later that he was able to legally buy these guns. Officials say the gunman acted alone and that there is absolutely no evidence that the shooter is part of any larger group. So on Sunday, the authorities released the names of the three victims. They were 52-year-old Angela Michelle Carr, 29-year-old Gerald Deshaun Gillian, and 19-year-old Anul Joseph Laguerre Jr. 
The sheriff said the gunman, whose name we're not going to use here because, frankly, I'm tired of giving these people attention, had left behind in his writings evidence that leads investigators to believe that he committed the shooting because it was the fifth anniversary of when another gunman had opened fire during a video game tournament in Jacksonville, killing two people before fatally shooting himself. Shortly before the attack here, the shooter sent his father a text message telling him to check his computer. The father found the writings and the family notified 911. But by then, the shooting had already begun. Jill, you mentioned that domestic incident. It appears that this was an incident several years ago between the shooter and his older brother. His older brother, by the way, happens to be serving a prison sentence right now for a 2017 armed robbery. The shooting took place just down the road from Edward Waters University. That is a small, historically black college. The university said in a statement that shortly before the shooting at the Dollar General, one of its security officers saw the man near the school's library and asked him to identify himself. When he refused, he was asked to leave. The sheriff said the man was then spotted putting on his vest and a mask before then leaving the campus area. It's unknown if he originally planned to attack the school, but uh, that is the assumption here from some of those who went to the college and spotted him sort of checking out the library. Moshe, absolutely horrific. Um, you know, the one thing that has stood out for me upon learning the details of, of another tragedy here was that this person was involuntarily committed um, and yet still able to legally purchase firearms. Yeah, the sheriff said nothing he could do. It was totally legal as far as the current laws are in Florida. All right, moving overseas, Russian state investigators said Sunday that genetic tests confirmed that Wagner chief Evgeny Prigozhin was among the victims in that plane crash last Wednesday. Testing showed that all 10 victims of a plane crash last week matched all of the names on the Jets manifest, and that includes Wagner's number two, Dmitry Utkin, and their mercenary group's logistics chief. It puts to rest speculation that while their names may have been on the plane's manifest, that they weren't actually on board. Western officials believe that the crash was a result of an explosion on board. Several have said they think that President Putin of Russia may have had Prigozhin killed. As retaliation for his mutiny exactly 60 days prior, for its part, the Kremlin is dismissing any assertions that Prigozhin was assassinated. They say it's an, quote, absolute lie. In June, if you remember, Prigozhin led that short-lived mutiny against the top military leadership in Russia, taking over several Russian cities and killing more than a dozen Russian troops and giving Putin the most embarrassing moment in his 20-year rule. Putin is not someone who takes kindly to being publicly embarrassed like that, as there had been plenty of speculation that the Russian president wasn't just going to let an affront like that go unpunished. Dozens of critics of Putin have been imprisoned poisoned or have just suddenly fallen out of windows in recent years legit many of them just death by window defenestration uh, has been a thing the plane crash appears to be a newish one here jill clearly pergozin had a bunch of enemies uh whether it's putin whether it's top military leadership who he's been ridiculing criticizing and wanting out now for a while and clearly they may have been trying to send a message here that no matter how loyal pergozin was for years to putin no matter what successes he accomplished uh, for Putin, that when you make a big mistake and you embarrass the top brass, including the top dog, you will literally fall out of the sky, sort of like the Greek mythological character Icarus, who flew too close to the sun. It's not beyond the Kremlin to ensure these things are seen that way symbolically. Uh, notably, Pergozin, until recently, rarely flew with his number two Utkin. You know, they're very paranoid as uh, they run a mercenary group. 
it was considered dangerous for them to fly together in case something happened. It's unclear as to why they were flying together here, along with a number three of Wagner Group. Clearly, it presented Pergozin's enemies with an uh, opportunity for what they call a decapitation strike, you know, literally take off the entire leadership group of Wagner. And it does show the practical nature of Putin, if, of course, he was involved in this, uh, that he cut a short-term deal with Pergozin two months ago so he wouldn't mess with the larger war front in Ukraine. He wouldn't embarrassingly have to fight on the streets of Moscow. So they cut that deal to let Pergozin and the Wagner group go to Belarus. Putin also needs the Wagner group on the front lines in Ukraine. So, you know, practically speaking, he's like, let me take a pause here. Let me deal with my personal issues with Pergozin at some point and cut a temporary deal. They've been negotiating now for a couple months to get the Wagner group mercenary group under Russian military control. Most were ready to do that. The person pushing back on that, Pergozin. And poof, Pergozin now gone. The entire Wagner leadership group now gone. And so you had over the weekend, Putin ordering the Wagner group uh, to all now directly report under Russian military command because their leadership is gone. All right, Jill, we have a lot more to get to in today's speed read. But first, we want to thank one of the sponsors we love here at the Mo News Podcast, Bolin Branch, a longtime sponsor, a longtime partner here. And they have made this summer of record heat a bit easier with some really soft and breathable sheets. We first got them in our house earlier this year. We've been loving them. I know you guys have them as well. Bolin Branch, that is B-O-L-L and Branch, sheets are made with organic cotton And don't include the harsh chemicals that are used by other brands. And the sheets do get softer with every wash. And right now, they're offering a special deal for the MoNews community. You can get 15% off with your first order when you use the promo code MoNews, M-O-N-E-W-S, over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MoNews, so you can sleep better at night with Bull and Branch sheets. Keep in mind, exclusions apply. See site for details. All right, time now for the speed read from the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Tropical storm Idalia formed Sunday morning and is forecast to make landfall this week along Florida's Gulf Coast as a hurricane. It's prompted Governor Ron DeSantis to declare a state of emergency for 33 counties. He held a briefing on the storm Sunday afternoon. Idalia is expected to be Hurricane Idalia by Tuesday, ahead of a projected Florida landfall. At the news conference, DeSantis warned that although the most likely path at this point seems to be headed to the Big Bend region of Florida, he said the storm could be a Category 2 storm by the time it makes landfall. That forecast path um, has the storm curling north toward Florida's Gulf Coast Tuesday into Wednesday, But with record warm waters off the coast, officials are warning residents to be vigilant for a larger storm. Of course, that warm water that is basically the fuel for these hurricanes. That has been the fear. Yeah, it's like jacuzzi level warm there off the coast there. So uh, that's the reasoning why uh, DeSantis and others are saying, listen, while it's headed towards the Big Bend area of Florida, Basically, everyone between the panhandle down to Naples needs to be ready and watching this closely. Keep in mind, it's only been about 11 months since Hurricane Ian, another I-named storm, hit the west coast of Florida. That hurricane was the most expensive in Florida history, nearly $200 billion in damage. And that was one of those storms that uh, diverted slightly before making landfall, if you recall. you know, Some people in Tampa were getting ready, and then it went south. Jill, you mentioned DeSantis. He has now canceled his campaign events on the presidential campaign trail this week as he's dealing with preparations and the aftermath of the storm. The National Hurricane Center has issued a storm surge watch, a hurricane watch, and a tropical storm watch 
for large parts of the Gulf Coast of Florida, basically, again, from Naples to the Panhandle. Look out for more watches and warnings in the coming hours and days. Power companies are already beginning to stage linemen in anticipation of power outages, and more than a 1,000 National Guardsmen have been mobilized and can use high-water vehicles as well as aircraft for rescue and recovery efforts. That's the thing about Florida. They have a lot of experience with these storms, so they know how to mobilize uh, in advance. Their big warning right now is to residents saying, don't just look at the maps and assume you're out of the cone or you're in the less likely part of the cone because storms in recent years uh, have strengthened in those final hours and have made moves in those final hours. The head of the Florida Division of Emergency Management reinforcing that over the weekend, saying the cone is where the eye could go, but those hurricane force winds and tropical force winds will extend far beyond the cone. You know, one big concern is it's expensive for people to evacuate. Uh, and so, you know, some people are like, I'm going to just stay put because it didn't hit me last time. And that's always a concern for Florida authorities is, you know, these people see so many of these warnings, uh, but really every storm is different. And so they really want people to stay focused here. From the Boston Globe, a constitutional debate unfolding in the nation's first primary state. That discussion among some constitutional scholars over former President Trump's eligibility for the 2024 ballot We first told you about it last week, and it now has New Hampshire's top election official looking at how the state should handle the matter. Secretary of State David Scanlon, who will be overseeing the first in the nation presidential primary in just five months, he said over the weekend that he has received several letters lately that have urged him to take action based on a legal theory that claims the Constitution empowers him to block Trump from the ballot. Scanlon is a Republican, and he is now seeking legal advice to ensure that his team thoroughly understands the arguments at play. He said he'll be soliciting some legal opinions from his in-house staff attorney and election experts on what is appropriate or not before he makes a decision. Two weeks ago, a couple of conservative legal scholars wrote a law review article arguing that Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election render him constitutionally disqualified from the 2024 race. And they are rooting their conclusion in the 14th Amendment, which bars sworn office holders who, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States from holding office again. They argue that that provision is self-executing and immediate and, quote, it can and should be enforced by every official, state or federal who judges qualifications. Yeah, so we talked about this briefly on the pod last week over on Instagram. Basically, these constitutional scholars saying it'll be up to a state or multiple states to determine whether Trump is eligible here, given that Trump faces not one, but two indictments on election interference in 2020. The question is whether he needs to be found guilty to not be eligible for the ballot. But some argue, as you just stated, he doesn't even need to be found guilty uh, based on the actions that he took. Again, notable here that there's a former prominent conservative judge arguing this. You have multiple members of the Federalist Society, a very conservative judicial group arguing this. Uh, And in this case, uh, surprisingly, a Republican Secretary of State in New Hampshire. Uh, But this will likely go up to the Supreme Court. Uh, If it's not New Hampshire, it'll be another state. But New Hampshire is all the more interesting because it's the first primary state. You've got the Iowa caucuses and then the New Hampshire primary. Uh, And then, of course, New Hampshire is a key swing state in the general election. Meanwhile, staying with politics here, the Trump campaign over the weekend announced his fundraising haul since he turned himself in in Georgia. 
Trump has raised more than $7 million from donors since he was booked in Atlanta jail Thursday evening. That's according to figures provided by his campaign on Sunday. On Friday alone, he raised about $4.2 million, making it the single highest 24-hour period of his campaign to date. That is mainly from merchandise. Uh, His website is full of T-shirts, mugs, signed posters with his mugshot saying never surrender. Ironically, that mugshot taken while he was surrendering to authorities. All that being said, his supporters are out there spending millions on this stuff. This mugshot is one of the few things where Trump haters and Trump lovers are all buying the same merch. Uh, Presumably the Trump haters not buying it from Trump's website, but from all the various websites out there, not hard folks on social media to find a Trump mugshot paraphernalia. The Trump lovers, of course, buying it from Trump's website. The Trump campaign saying, listen, this proves people are sticking with him. We have no concerns. This reinforces that the whole thing is corrupt. And Trump will fight this and win this. Uh, Trump allies, by the way, also posting mock mugshots on social media. Marjorie Taylor Greene, among the Republicans who have made her own mugshot to post on social media, saying, post your mugshot to show your support for Donald Trump. Of course, there are many Trump critics, including in his own party, Chris Christie, also running for president. One of the two Republican candidates last week who said they will not support him if Trump is convicted over the weekend, telling CBS, quote, Trump should maybe sell one of his golf courses or maybe sell his apartment at Trump Tower to fund his legal fees. But instead, he's taking people who donate an average of $100 to him and is using their money to pay his legal fees. It's unethical. It's immoral. That's Chris Christie, of course, who still stands at a few percent in the polls, about 40 or 50 percent behind Trump in the Republican Party. And it does come, Joe, as we've gotten a couple more polls over the weekend post-debate that do show some moves for DeSantis and Nikki Haley out of the debate last week, but still overwhelming leads for Trump. How do we get who's ever doing Trump swag <laughs> to do the Mo News swag? How, how do we get them on board? Jill, do you have a major legal fees to pay for that you need the Mo News community to help fund? I sure hope not. <laughs> we would not use we would not use whatever you guys give us for our legal fees. We will pay that independently. God forbid if we have legal fees on the road. Um, we are working on some merch. We're going to be uh, rolling that out, Jill, in the next six weeks. Mosh, I, for one, love our Mo News mug. I also have Mo News stickers that I got when I was uh, at the WeWork office a, a few days ago. And I'm very psyched to basically wear like Mo News sweatshirts and T-shirts 24-7. I will be a billboard for Mo News. The team is on it. We're building it into the website right now. From the Washington Post, the paper reporting that federal authorities have been investigating nearly 5,000 pilots suspected of falsifying their medical records to conceal that they were receiving benefits for mental health disorders and other serious conditions that could make them unfit to fly. The pilots under scrutiny are military veterans who told the FAA that they are healthy enough to fly, yet failed to report as required by law that they were also collecting veterans' benefits for disabilities that could bar them from the cockpit. Veterans Affairs investigators discovered the inconsistencies more than two years ago by cross-checking federal databases. The FAA, though, has kept many details of the case a secret from the public. The FAA saying the agency has been investigating about 4,800 pilots, quote, who might have submitted incorrect or false information as part of their medical applications. The FAA has now closed about half of those cases and has ordered about 60 pilots who, quote, posed a clear danger to aviation safety to cease flying on an emergency basis 
while their records are reviewed. About 600 of the pilots under investigation are licensed to fly for passenger airlines. Most of the rest hold commercial licenses that allow them to fly for hire, including with cargo firms, corporate clients, or tour companies. Experts said that the inquiry has exposed long-standing vulnerabilities in the FAA's medical system for screening pilots. Now, while pilots must pass regular government-contracted health exams, the tests are often pretty cursory, and the FAA relies on aviators to self-report conditions that can otherwise be difficult to detect. These are conditions like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. From ABC News, legendary TV star Bob Barker, who hosted the famed game show The Price is Right for 35 years, has died. He was 99 years old. Barker died at his home on Saturday morning. He was just a few months shy of his 100th birthday. His publicist saying, quote, he had a wonderful life. Born in 1923, Barker was raised in South Dakota and Missouri, among other places, before eventually enlisting in the United States Navy during World War II. He never saw action, and after returning home to attend college, he got his start in radio. He would get his start with a 20-year run on a show called Truth or Consequences before getting the gig to start hosting The Price is Right in 1972. He would begin the role at the age of 48 and host the show for nearly four decades before retiring at 83. Jill, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's one of those things where like his most famous gig, right, his iconic gig, he doesn't begin until he's nearly 50 years old, which uh, is always something we try to remind folks on this podcast. I know you're still trying to make the 40 over 40 list happen. (laughs) This would prove my point. (laughs) Jill, many folks on social media over the weekend saying the obvious if you're a Price is Right watcher, that as we lost him at the age of 99, Bob made sure to get close to 100 without going over. Barker remembered by many of us, uh, especially 80s and 90s kids, for keeping us company when we were homesick from school. I have vivid memories of that, Moshe. That was key. I I remember in uh, Chicago, I think it was on in... Uh, at 11 a.m. So just after your parents left for work, you know, you were home trying to get through the day. Uh, Price is Right would keep you company, showcase showdown, etc. before all the soap operas came on. Of course, one of his other iconic appearances was in the movie Happy Gilmore. I uh, posted a clip of it over the weekend. Uh, that famous brawl between him and Adam Sandler, where Adam says to him, the price is wrong. And then Bob retorts after knocking him out. no. And then Bob, of course, gets him back. Apparently, in real life, Barker was neighbors with Chuck Norris and had trained in martial arts. But most the video that I just cannot get over that you posted on Instagram was a Breaking Bad star, Aaron Paul, who was a contestant on The Price is Right many years ago. Just like so hyped up. I, I don't even know on what. I just couldn't get enough of it. And from the looks of it, it I don't think anyone who saw it could get enough. So, Everyone was like, post more. So Aaron Paul, before we all got to know him as Jesse Pinkman on Breaking Bad, was a 20-year-old struggling actor in Hollywood. And apparently him and a bunch of his friends lined up. And you have to start like four or five in the morning to line up to get into Prices Right. Uh, he apparently, while standing in line, says he drank six Red Bulls, uh, and then he appears as a contestant. Again, way before anyone knew who he was, he just was sort of this wired-up contestant. So I posted a short clip of it as we were remembering Bob Barker on the Instagram feed over the weekend, and people were like, wait, what happens? Does he get the showcase showdown? So I kept posting more and more clips from the appearance. They're all on YouTube. 
By the way, Aaron Paul has discussed this in multiple interviews where he's like, you know, man, like just Google Aaron Paul uh, Price is Right and you'll see my crazy appearance from when I was 20 years old. Anyway, it really is a roller coaster. I won't give anything away, but take a look at the clip we posted on the Instagram feed over the weekend. It is pure entertainment. And you do see the effect that Barker really had on a whole generation of Americans because Aaron Paul is like, oh, my God, I'm obsessed with you, Bob Barker. You are a legend. And I think that was really the feeling that, you know, many people had, especially during that run from 1972 to 2007, uh, hosting the show. And most we should stay true to Barker's legacy here on the podcast and note that everybody should have their pets spayed and neutered. A reference to his final line on Price is Right all those years for those of you who aren't familiar. And finally, from the Wall Street Journal, the prime years for making smart financial decisions are, on average, 53 and 54. That was very surprising to me, Moshe. I thought it was going to be a little bit earlier than that. But apparently, at about that age, people have accumulated knowledge and experience about money, spending, and saving but haven't begun losing key analytic cognitive skills. And it's also roughly the age when adults make the fewest financial mistakes related to things like credit card use, interest rates, and fees. Knowing what leads to the financial strength of your early 50s is valuable. Younger adults can delve more deeply into basics like inflation and interest rates that hedge against lack of experience. And those who are older can work to keep their analytical skills sharp. This study was led from an aging center out of Australia. In the 2022 study, they looked at financial literacy, which is the ability to understand financial information and apply it to managing personal finances. Financial literacy typically peaked at 54 and then declines after that. According to the study, which gauged financial literacy using questions about inflation, interest rates, and diversification. A little scary that about 11 years before retirement is when you're making the peak of financially smart decisions, though they do note in this study, Jill, that people can and do make good and smart financial decisions from their 20s to their 40s, as well as into their 60s and 70s. One of the leads of the study, who, by the way, is 45 years old, says some of his best financial decisions came earlier in his life and involved 401k type savings accounts. Contributions were mandatory when he started his first job at age 18, but once enrolled, he actively chose funds that benefit those who have a longer investment horizon. Now, the study authors say here financial decision-making requires a combination of reasoning skills that differ by age. Those in their 20s are better at absorbing and processing new information and computing numbers, so-called fluid intelligence, but don't have as much life experience or haven't accumulated enough facts or knowledge uh, to make the best decisions. Accumulating those facts is what they call crystallized intelligence, which tends to improve with age. So it's a battle here between crystallized intelligence and fluid intelligence. You start with fluid, you get to crystallize, and I guess they found that this key moment is 53 or 54 years old. Though, again, with all the resources available out there and by listening to this podcast and our newsletter, I think we can get you there earlier. I don't know. Between Bob Barker not starting to host The Price is Right until his late 40s and this study, I'm feeling good that maybe I haven't peaked just yet, Mosh. <laughs> For those who listen to this pod, Jill often says that she peaked in 1998, but I guess no. she's uh, reassessing. That's generous. It, it may have been 96, <laughs> may, maybe 97. <laughs> All right. Good segue to On This Day in History. We're going to begin in 1963. On this day in 1963, 
about 200,000 people marched on Washington, an event that became a high point in the civil rights movement, especially remembered for on this day in history, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. All right, we're going to stay in the 1960s for this next piece of history. On this day in 1968, those protests, the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago culminated in the so-called Battle of Michigan Avenue. It was a violent confrontation between demonstrators and police. Jill, it's really those scenes of 1968 that I try to reinforce to people who get worried about what we're seeing in today's politics. And I like to point them to what was going on in the 1960s, just that year of 68, where we saw the assassination of MLK, the assassination of RFK, that a battle outside the DNC in the summer of 68. Really, it felt like the country was really uh, tearing apart at the seams at the height of the Vietnam War there. So it's always important just to think about history when we look at where we are in modern politics and know that it just wasn't so long ago that these battles uh, were really unfolding across the country. And if you go back not even that much further, there was literally a civil war in this country. Yes, let's let's hope we never get near there again. But important to note uh, and look back at the, the history of the 60s there uh, and see what unfolded and, and really how it impacted our politics. We can talk about that on another pod. We'll forward now to 1996 on this day in history. The 15-year marriage between Prince Charles and the Princess of Wales, Diana, officially ended as the final divorce decree was issued. The cover of Time magazine that day was just simply headlined, It's Over. All right, a bit of music history. For those of you who didn't know our clue earlier at the beginning of the pod, on this day in history, 33 years ago, LL Cool J released his album, Mama Said Knock You Up. And finally, one more piece of music pop culture history 20 years ago today, Jill. The famous moment orchestrated by Madonna at the MTV Video Music Awards, where she was dressed as a groom and Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera were dressed as her brides. She kissed each of them on the lips. It was the uh, scene replayed around the world, August 28th, 2003. Mosh, one fun fact that I recently learned, apparently Madonna had initially picked um, Britney Spears and Jennifer Lopez for that moment. Hmm. And I think Jennifer Lopez just had some type of scheduling conflict and she couldn't do it. Um, and that's when they got Christina Aguilera. But the moment would have been very different. And I also feel like in some ways, maybe the trajectory of JLo's career would have been different. Jill, it was those peak MTV Video Music Award years where like that was like a must-see um, event because you had the kind of more serious and staid Grammy Awards and MTV was having like the fun movie awards and the fun music awards. And I imagine they still host these award show over on MTV, but I, I feel like that was probably the peak. If, as we talk on this podcast about peak, I feel like it, VMAs peaked in 2003. And while we are uh, still peaking, Mosh, let's thank everybody for listening to the podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. Uh, we would really appreciate it. It helps us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And review us in the App Store. And thanks to all of you who have been joining Mo News Premium. You can do that over at mo.news slash premium. We got uh, some extra podcasts for you. We did a great interview looking at the history of the Middle East and what is next over on the Members Only Premium podcast. Also been doing a whole bunch of deep dives over on the Premium Instagram account. Again, you can do that over at mo.news slash premium. It supports what we're doing here on the main podcast, the main newsletter, the main Instagram account. Right now, we're offering a special free trial, free 30-day trial with the code MONEWSTRIAL over at mo.news slash premium. Bye, everybody. Later.
Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.